Isaac. Say, hell's no matter. So I'm not take off with this guy, Michael. Oh, yeah. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Brian Wenzel, and this is Our Weird World. So I actually wanted to start this episode out with doing talking about a uh, an article that I came across actually a while ago. It was actually the beginning of June. I believe the events occurred at the end of May. But for some reason, I cannot find the article. I've been searching, 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 and I thought I had saved it, but apparently I didn't. I can't find it anywhere. But anyways, from what I remember, I'm just going to talk about it briefly before I get into the actual episode. Um, it was just one that was so wild. I thought it was right up there with the kind of stuff that I do on this show. Um, and then also, I want to get, again, continue getting back into, um, you know, the true crime stuff as well that I had uh, done early, but... I'll, I'll get to that but anyways so I saw this story at the beginning of June I was just looking through news feeds I liked it every morning I was actually just doing that just before recording now I was looking at one uh, regarding uh, a faux pizza shop in LA that was basically making uh, THC honey according to the article and we're they were making pizzas but they were like putting the stuff on their pizza and it was, it was like fake pizza shop and you could go there and buy a a pizza with THC honey on it. I, so <laughs> I just thought that was pretty interesting, pretty silly. I, I didn't think it was worth really diving into, but pretty interesting article. I just read that this morning. It was from just uh, a few days ago. But anyways, this article, article that I came across at the beginning of June was of a woman who had been murdered in a terrible manner. She was murdered by her own daughter and her daughter's daughter, her granddaughter, uh, from what I remember, the article didn't actually assist with the murder, but assisted with hiding the body, hiding the evidence. So there was this uh, elderly woman that was, she threatened to report her daughter. I can't remember for what the circumstances were. This is why I was trying to find the article. I wanted to read it. I couldn't remember exactly what the circumstances were that caused the this to happen. But anyways, her, her the elderly woman, her her daughter was doing something, had done something. And she said that she was going to report it to the police. I don't remember if it was like fraud or something like that. I can't recall exactly what the uh, the reason was. So anyways, in order to stop her elderly mother from reporting her, she instead decided to murder her. So she literally murdered her own mother. And then her daughter, the murdered mother's granddaughter, apparently showed up. And her mom, the one that murdered her mom, uh, basically got her daughter to help her with dismembering her body and trying to get rid of the evidence. Um, basically, they chopped up her body and were trying to hide the evidence. And again, I wish I could find the article because I, I, I can't remember the exact specifics, but how they were caught. But I just thought that was just such a heinous story, this woman who was murdered by her own daughter. And then her granddaughter was implicit in assisting her mother in chopping up the body of her grandmother and assisting her mother in, in trying to hide it, hide the evidence. And, and I can't remember how they were caught, but I, I, reading the article, I was just like, oh my gosh, this, that's so terrible, so disgusting. It, it, you know, to murder somebody just in of itself, somebody that you don't, even if it's somebody you don't know, that's such a heinous act, such a heinous crime, but to do it to your own mother because she's going to report you for, 
again, I can't remember what the, what she was doing, but that's just it's it's shocking sometimes what people will do. So yeah, it's just such a heinous act to do that, and then to talk your daughter into helping you, and she actually agrees to assist in in dismembering her grandmother and and trying to get rid of the evidence. I I don't understand what's going through people's minds when they do something like that. First off, the elderly woman's daughter murders her. What? You're you murder your own mother because you don't want to get reported for whatever BS you're doing because you're doing something illegal. And then you manage to talk your daughter, her grandmother, excuse me, granddaughter into assisting you in chopping her up and trying to get rid of the evidence. That's ridiculous. Oh, they were, it was, uh, they were burning her body parts. That's what they're doing. And I don't remember if it was somebody saw them doing it or smelt it or something. I, I, I can't remember if you know what I'm talking about. If you've heard about this story, let me know. Um, again, I searched and I looked for the article. I thought I saved it, but I, I just could not find it. Um, it was really frustrating. I really wanted to find the details on it, but yeah, just, it, oh my gosh, it was just such a terrible act hearing about that is so terrible and i'd like to find the article and and maybe read more on it and follow up with it see what happens um you know as far as court sentence because i believe right now they're just uh in prison wherever they're wherever it happened just waiting for trial because it it literally just happened recently they just arrested them um it was back at the end of may beginning of june sometime in that time frame when they discovered this and and they were arrested for it so um, yeah, well, I, I think it'd be neat to follow up on that, see what comes of it, uh, see what happens on the, the legal side, the court side. So we'll see. Um, yeah, if you know what, know what I'm talking about, what story I'm talking about, who it is, if you have an article, uh, share it with me, let me know. Um, maybe I'll do a full episode on it if I can find it again. Uh, just such a heinous act, but I just want to bring that up and, and talk about that. I don't really have a good segue into this episode. This one that I'm going to talk about, it's not really like, it's not paranormal, it's not a true crime, murder mystery, anything like that. It's just a story that I came upon actually watching a little short documentary, and I just thought it was really interesting. Um, it was basically just an accident, uh, human error, um, but it, it it cost the lives of many people. I apologize about the noise, my kids are awake. So yeah, I thought it was an interesting story, I watched this documentary about it. Uh, I found some articles online. I read about it. Uh, some of the information from the documentary I watched and the article, I, some of the articles I found online, there's some information that didn't match exactly. Um, I, I have the two different articles in front of me. Hopefully I can um, note those. I hope, hope hopefully I won't forget. But I noticed there were a couple things that, so I, I'm not sure. And I looked up in different resor- uh, different sources and I was still getting conflicting information between this documentary and some of the articles I found. Some reported the same as what this documentary reported. Some reported what this, I found this one from, uh, it's called the, well, I'll, I'll get, when we get into it, I'll talk about it, but I found a historical newspaper article about it, and it was actually a clipping of the newspaper article from the local news. I read through it, and some of what they stated didn't match what this documentary states, so I'm not sure if the documentary didn't have their information correct, or if the reporter's at the time when this incident occurred, got some of their information incorrect, misread, mistyped. Anyways, it, 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 not, it's not like huge, big, disparaging differences, but there's a couple little 
issues between the, 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 the two main sources I'm using for this. But what I'm talking about is a skydiving disaster that occurred in, on Lake Erie in August of 1967. It was, let me see, let me find the date. Looking through my notes here, it was August 28th of 1967. Uh, even the time when it occurred is actually different from uh, the new, old original news article that I found and the documentary. Um, the news article states that it occurred around 4 p.m. Let me see the documentary. I took notes from it. Um, it was actually really good. It wasn't super long, but it was really good. I think they quoted like 5 or 6 p.m. I'm looking through my notes here. I'm trying to see if I can find it. They might, maybe they didn't quote a specific time. I'm not seeing it. They may have just said like in the evening or something like that. Yeah, I can't find an exact time. Let me see. If you're not familiar with this, um, you can look up uh, Lake Erie skydive disaster. Uh, you can look up w one of the news article. The article that I got is from the uh, Huron Historical Society. It's uh, www the Huron Historical Society org, uh, all one all one word. Obviously, no no hyphens or dashes or anything like that. And the subject you can when you're on their website, you can look for uh, August 1967 tragedy puts Huron in the news. That's the title of the of the news article from August 1967. So according to the news article, they stayed at 4 p.m. 17 skydivers they parachuted accidentally into Lake Erie, which is just east of east of uh, Huron. Uh, this town in uh, it's in uh, Ohio, uh, near Cleveland. If you're curious about the area, um, they claim that the accident. It so according to this news article and even the documentary I watched and other sources, uh, this has been it is considered the worst skydiving disaster of all since skydiving has existed. Uh, skydiving as a sport is fairly new. Um, obviously, it can only exist with the existence of modern aircraft and and how long has modern flight you know kind of been the way it is you know obviously in the early 1900s it kind of took off 1930s it got better 1940s 1950s it, it really changed especially with uh, uh, world war ii a lot of evolution came from that in in aircraft aircraft design and they got a lot better so according to these the this documentary and, and some of these articles i read um they do claim that uh, you know, in the 1950s, skydiving did start becoming popular as a sport, uh, as a recreational sport that people would want to do. Um, you could start, you know, getting your skydiving certificate and you start going with experienced skydivers and jumping and, and, and doing it as, as sport. I've always personally wanted to try it. I haven't uh, been brave enough to do it. I'll admit it. I, I've thought about it. I've, had a couple opportunities that came about and I just couldn't bring myself to do it so and it would have been a, a tandem jump I would have been you know I've never skydived before so obviously I would have been with an experienced skydiver where you see people where they're you know they have the uh the straps around them and you're hooked to a, an experienced skydiver with you and they they tell you what to do as you're falling and all that etc I had a couple opportunities to do that I just I chickened out couldn't do it so I always thought it'd be a neat experience but I just Never did it. So whatever, it's all good. It doesn't bother me that <laughs> not jumping out of an air, uh, from an airplane. I know people love it, and people that have done it say it's a great experience, great time, and life changing kind of thing. But I, whatever, I, <laughs> I'll live vicariously through others. You, you send me a video of it. That's great. That's fine. So, anyways, yeah, it started becoming uh, 
more popular as a sport. So by this time frame in 1967, when this occurred, it was already very popular. The people involved in this, they were experienced skydivers. None of them were um, rookies. They'd all had experience skydiving. Um, and actually, according to uh, the documentary, it stated that there were 20 skydivers that took part in this event, this jump. The documentary states 16 people died. Some of the articles I read say 17. And I've looked through my notes, and some of them don't match up. I, I feel like the information from the documentary and some of the other sources I found, the 16 seems to come up. So I think that's the correct number, is, is 16 skydivers were killed. Um, but there were 20 skydivers in total. So what exactly happened? Let's, let's get into some of the details. So on the morning of August 28th, 1967, there were 20 skydivers that were waiting to board a plane. Now, what it was, it was actually a World War II bomber plane that had been uh, modified into using as a skydiving uh, vehicle. You know, because again, this is late 60s. Um, aviation was uh, evolving a lot too at the time as well. Skydiving was becoming popular. So they would take these old World War II bombers and they would repurpose them for skydiving, which made a lot of sense. They, you could, they were already stripped down military vehicles. So they're for an air aircraft, relatively lightweight. You know, you had room in them. You could shove plenty of people in there that wanted to skydive. You could open the door while you're flying because they're they're not like modern jets that are. Obviously, there's airplanes nowadays that are not pressurized, but these were not pressurized cabins. So you could open the door while you're flying. You weren't going to risk of being sucked out or anything like that. And and they flew at lower altitudes. They're not flying at extremely high altitudes like it like a uh, you know a commercial jetliner would fly at. So they were. You know, air bomb, old World War II bombers like this were probably well suited for this type of activity. So that's what they were using. They were using this modified World War II bomber, uh, B-25. Yeah, it was a modified B-25. So there were 20 skydivers that were waiting to go on the skydiving adventure. They were using this World War II bomber and as well as a, a Cessna. Where, where was it? A Cessna? It was a smaller, smaller. Uh, I don't remember if it was a two-seater or four-seater Cessna that was also going to be involved in the flight. And I'll talk more about that one too, but I just want to see if they said what type it was. I'm looking through my notes. I'm not seeing like a model, like a Cessna 150, Cessna 170, 180, whatever. But a Cessna, a smaller aircraft was, was in, uh, a part of it as well. So again, anyways, there's two aircraft. You have the World War II B B-25 bomber that was modified for this and a Cessna that was also going to be involved. Now, of course, at this point, you know, they didn't realize they were going to be, this was going to become the, the deadliest skydiving disaster in the history of recreational skydiving. What happened was, let me see, they, not all of them got onto the B-25. Let me find the notes about the, the Cessna, because they, they had it split up. Okay, here we go. So there were 20 of them, 18 went on the B-25 bomber, two of them went on the Cessna, that would follow behind. The Cessna was also going to be, uh, they had a, a photographer that was going to be taking pictures of the, the whole event of the jump because it was supposed to have all these skydivers that were going to jump together. The B-25, I think I have a typo here, because it says the B-25, they were going to jump from 30,000 feet. That's awfully high. But then, I, and then there's a note here that says the Cessna was going to be flying at 12,000 feet, and that's where those guys were going to, the two were going to jump out of that. And the B-25 was going to be above them. Apologies, I, I, I'm looking through my notes here, and that just doesn't seem right. 
maybe I maybe I typed it wrong, maybe I misheard. So anyways, basically the idea was the B-25 was going to fly up to a certain height. They were going to be above the Cessna. The Cessna was going to be below them taking pictures. You're going to have the 18 jumpers jump out of the B-25 and then the two others jump out of the Cessna and 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 skydive with them as well. So I'm look, yeah, I'm looking at my notes here again and it says B-25 was going to fly to 20,000 feet and the Cessna from 12,000 feet. That I could see being a lot. I don't know why I had 30,000 feet on one of them. Maybe it was just a typo that I had. But anyways, this was a, a kind of a, a unique opportunity at the time that where they thought, okay, we can have all these jumpers jump out of the, the, the bomber from a higher altitude, and then we'll have a couple others jump out of the Cessna from a lower altitude and join us in the skydiving event. They were going to do like, you've probably seen videos of where people do like the, um, uh, you have a bunch of skydivers and they'll, they'll like come together and they'll, they'll hold hands in like a big circle and things like that. And they'll have people swooping past each other and, and next to each other and all they're basically that's what they were going to do they were going to do this whole big skydiving event from this higher altitude where they all skydive together you can have this photographer in the the Cessna that was going to fly around taking pictures of of it occurring as well so apologies about the noise my kids are in the background playing games making noise again I don't have a studio I don't have the luxury of doing this in a quiet space unless I'm doing it at two o'clock in the morning but let's face it two o'clock in the morning I'm usually asleep in my bed so again, apologies. They were taking off, getting ready to go. Now at the time, back in the late 60s, they didn't have the sort of GPS systems that we have now in modern aircraft. Even even in a lower end a Cessna, you know, like like what is here? What like, again? I couldn't find that. Whether it's a 170, 180. There's so much technology nowadays out there available for pilots that fly aircraft. It's pretty amazing. Um, there's a lot of really amazing technologies out there and computer systems that they can have on board that can assist them in their flight and, and just monitoring their flight, tracking where they are. It's, it's really cool. If you've ever seen the, the glass cockpits in aircraft these days, it's very impressive, the technology. Now, of course, back then, they didn't have this. They relied on analog gauges in all their aircraft, and they didn't have the GPS tracking uh, that, that we have nowadays. They do have radar. Radar did exist, so they, they would watch them on radar. Um, so they use, let me see, what do they call it? There was a beacon uh, that they would look for. Apologies, I'm no I'm no pilot. I'm not a flying expert or anything like that. I'm, I, I find it fascinating, but I, I'm not, like, I don't know everything about this, so let me see. Um, yeah, so it says here, in the 1960s, GPS was not yet available, and pilots would rely on very high frequency radio signals for guidance. Uh, one of my notes uh, says, quote, according to court documents related to the incident, both planes contacted air traffic control, which they did back then. They still do now. You talk to a live person. Obviously, that live person now has a lot of instruments as well that they can see and monitor aircraft in the air. Obviously, there's a lot more air, air traffic nowadays versus back then, but still. So according to this document, both of the aircraft pilots contacted uh, air traffic control or ATC within two minutes of each other. Uh, they reported their positions um, over or near the Cleveland radio beacon. So there was this beacon called the Cleveland radio beacon that they use, they would use at the time to mark their position. And they would call ATC and say, hey, I'm at the beacon, here's where I am. And they could use that relative to their radar and look and see, does it match up? Are they where they actually say they are, or they claim they are, or what radar is showing me? So it's a way they can line it up basically and say okay yep i see him on radar here you called in the radio beacon cool 
Everything's copacetic. You are where you say you are. Great. That's just kind of a rough rundown of, again, I'm no expert on this. I'm no air traffic controller pilot or anything, but that's just kind of a basic idea. So according to these documents, the B-25 pilot who was flying the larger group of, of parachutists, he was the first one to make the call. And he was giving a head, he gave a heading, excuse me. Oh my gosh, he was given a heading by the radar controller at air, air traffic control, which supposedly put him at six miles away from the designated jump zone. Now, this jump zone was over the airport which they took off, which was is called Ortner Airfield. It still exists today. You can look it up O R T N E R Airfield uh, near Cleveland. They took off from there. They basically went in a circle ascending kind of a spiral pattern going up going up ascending ascending near this air, this airfield and they were going to jump so that the parachutist would basically land back at the airfield and then the pilot could come back and land down there as well so they'd all end up back in the same place it's called ortner airfield so atc gave him a heading so that he was about six miles away from the jump zone there at ortner airfield now the cessna was flying at twelve thousand feet at this time Again, the B-25 was at 20,000 feet. They, they both made their ascent. And the Cessna was flying towards the Cleveland Beacon at this time. And they, according to documents, they had no visual of the B-25, which they should have. That's a big key here. They should have had visual. The pilot flying the Cessna should have been able to see the B-25. They stated they could not at this time when these calls were made to ATC. So they had no visual of the B-25. Air traffic control... They wanted to verify their location in relation to the B-25, in relation to each other, the B-25 and the Cessna. So the Cessna called ATC. Now, according to ATC, according to their documents and and all the reports that I found, ATC at this time, they could only spot one aircraft on their radar in the area. They informed the Cessna that they were probably about six miles behind the B-25. So again, the B-25 was about six miles from the jump zone. The Cessna was told that he was six miles behind the B-25. So they're 12 miles from the jump zone at this point, according to ATC. Now, as it so turns out, things were quite different. Unknown to everyone at the time, the pilots, the skydivers, air traffic control had actually mistakenly identified the Cessna as the B-25 on radar, confusing the bomber's location. So the bomber was actually further ahead, further north than they actually, than what ATC thought they were. So they're seeing the Cessna on radar. They told the uh, B-25 pilot, that was them. This is where you are. Cool, the the B-25 pilot's cool. I'm, I'm six miles away, I'm good to go. In all reality, it was the Cessna that was six miles from the jump zone. So according to what they thought was happening was the B-25 was six miles away. The Cessna was six miles behind them for a total of 12 miles. In all reality, the bomber was six miles further north than they should have been, as well as the Cessna being, the Cessna was actually at the six miles from the jump area where it was thought that it was the B-25. This is key. This is big mistake, huge mistake. So as they were flying, as they approached, uh, again, according to these documents, as the pilot believed they were about three miles from the jump zone, they st- they started preparing for the drop. The drop, excuse me, the jump. What the skydivers were going to do, they were planning to perform a free fall maneuver 
basically close to each other. Like I mentioned before, they're going to do kind of like a, uh, you know, free falling. I don't know what you'd call it, like uh, acrobatic moves, however you call it. If, if you've skydived before and you know what like the terms for that are, please let me know. I think it's cool to watch, but yeah. Anyway, so that's what they were going to do. They were going to free fall together and do all these these stunts basically and it was going to be you know basically a show for people on the ground at, at the lake and whatnot you know it, it's summer right near the lake you know over this this airfield people could see it you know it'd be a spectacular sight right that's what they're going to do but there were some complications so the flight was actually supposed to take place in the morning but they decided to call it off to the afternoon because of morning uh, cloud cover and fog which you don't want to skydive when you can't especially back then they that that again the, the technology and instruments they had you don't want to be jumping out of a plane you can't see the ground they decided to wait till the afternoon on this particular day that wasn't the best idea the, all the skydivers they're in the back of the plane they can't really see outside because of the nature of the design of this aircraft they're getting ready to go the pilot gives them the signal to jump excuse me to the pilot gives a signal to the jump master that they're ready to go and they could jump when they jumped it's rapid. They're they're getting out fast. All of the jumpers. It's, it's stated that when they jumped out of this, they were out within within 30 seconds or less. They were just boom 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 one after another. Go 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 out. Go 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 to start their their maneuvers in the air. Now, however, one thing that came into play was they immediately noticed that there was cloud cover below them. Not good. Not good. You're you're jumping out of an airplane and there's cloud cover. So unfortunately, because of this, the pilot. And the skydivers were unaware of exactly what was below them. Again, I mentioned that according to ATC, they thought that they were six miles coming in towards the airfield. So they're actually further north than they should have been. They're actually over Lake Huron, excuse me, Lake Erie when they made this jump. And there's cloud cover over the lake. So they couldn't see. They had no clue that they're about to jump into a lake. Skydiving a lake, bad idea. So there's this cloud cover, which limit their their light and their and their their what they could see um they, they you know they couldn't see where they what they were falling into where they were going right so the cessna they attempted to locate them after the 18 jumpers had jumped and were in the air thinking that the bomber was in the same area they were looking for him but they couldn't find him so now neither the bomber pilot nor the jumpers were there in the area where they should have been so the cessna's flying around like Okay, we're supposed to do this jump together. I got these two jumpers that are ready to jump, but where where are where are they? Where are you guys? I couldn't find anything in here about as far as like maybe there are some notes about them having radio to each other. You'd think they would have been talking to each other, but regardless of that fact, whether they were or not, this happened. It's a true story. It it really occurred. It's extremely unfortunate. Um. So, anyways, the the jumpers they remained in free fall and they were descending through this cloud layer, which broke out around four thousand feet. So they went from 20,000 feet, they're, they're free-falling, the cloud cover at about 4,000 feet above the ground started to clear so they could, you know, once you get below that 4,000 feet, you'd be able to see things. Uh, it wasn't until then, now the skydivers realized what had happened and the mistake and where they were going to land. They realized they're over Lake Erie, which is not good if you're skydiving, um, unless you have the proper equipment, and we'll talk about that a little bit here uh, towards the end. Now, of course, they had to make decisions that basically were could be life or death. So at this time, there was roughly three and a half minutes left before they would reach the ground. So at this point, the skydivers they actually started to remove some of their clothing and boots 
that they and, and things they were wearing that basically wouldn't float. The and the I should have mentioned this before. Even though it's August and summer, they're in a aircraft that's not pressurized and basically just a metal tube in the sky. And the altitude they're at, the temperatures are going to be very low. Going to be very cold. And so when they're up there, they're going to be freezing basically. And then jumping out, they're being extremely cold. So they were actually wearing extra layers of clothing to stay warm during the jump, which they would just wear until they landed and then take them off when they got to the ground. So they're free falling, removing these, you know, heavy articles of clothing and boots and whatnot that they knew that were just going to be extra weight that was going to take them down in the water when they land in the water. Because they're over the lake, they're landing in the water no matter what. So they're free falling, shedding clothing, boots, like I said, whatever, etc. as they're preparing to fall in the water. Uh, there were actually witnesses on the ground, according to reports, that saw brightly colored canopies open at different intervals in the sky over the lake, with the jumpers plunging into the water, basically one right after another, in, in a straight line. Um, a lot of people thought that this was uh, like a planned jump at the time. That it was just, oh, cool, they're doing a show, they're jumping over into the lake. Awesome, cool. Little did some of them realize that it was a lot more serious than that. There was an off-duty Coast Guardsman who was uh, witnessed this and was near the area. He was on the beach nearby. And he saw them coming down, and he actually started to organize a lot of rescue efforts with nearby boats to get out there and try to rescue him. He realized that this is not normal, that something went wrong. We need to go out there and look for these people and try to help them. The great the um, Lake Erie, and I'm having a brain fart here, our, our Great Lakes that we have here, yeah, Great Lakes that we have here between U.S. and Canada, they're so massive, they, the way the water moves is a lot like oceans. The waves can get really big like an ocean. And just like in the ocean, they, they you know, refer to it as sea conditions. Now, the sea conditions during this day were not good. They were not good at all. So, one, they're, they're jumping in over water, and then the sea conditions were, were bad that day too, so that doesn't help either. Um, it was said that waves were reaching anywhere between four and six feet. Those are big waves. You know, you think four to six feet doesn't sound like much. But when you're in the water and you have a wave that tall coming over you and moving that much, that's a lot. And especially if you're in a little boat trying to move through it, that's that's heavy seas that you're trying to get through. So not good, not good conditions either. So this just added to the severity of the situation. Now, of course, up far above, the B-25 is flying, making his descent to come back down land, just completely unaware of where they are in reality and and what's happening to the people free falling down below into the water utter chaos for the skydivers the pilots just coming back like cool successful jump i'm going back to the airfield oh i missed an important detail that's where the thirty thousand feet came into play that's where i missed the notes okay sorry about that so you have the 18 jumpers 16 jumped at twenty thousand feet the b-25 was going to send another ten thousand feet thirty thousand jump another two Cessna was going to jump another two, so for a total of 20 people. That's where I messed up. Sorry about that. That's where my, I didn't fully read through my notes. I, that's where I messed up. So yeah, 20,000 feet, they were going to, 16 were going to jump. B-25 was going to basically do a quick ascent to 30,000 feet. The other two were going to jump from higher up above, basically get a view of the 16 below. And then you have the two in the Cessna as well behind at a lower altitude jumping as well. That's how it's all going to work. There we go. That's where the 30,000 feet came into play. I confused myself earlier. I, I totally missed that. So that explains that. So yeah, that's where the remaining two would jump from. So 16, then two, then the other two. So that's, you got all your 20 uh, jumpers there. 
So after plotting their new course, the B-25 pilot, the last two skydivers they did successfully jump as well. They jumped over the intended drop zone at the airfield. So they managed somehow to get back to the intended jump zone. And every report I've read, it's kind of like they just kind of gloss over everything. It's just like, oh, they're back magically where they're actually supposed to be. And these two jumped out over the correct area. Okay, but so anyways, these two jumped out over the correct jump zone over Ortner Airfield. And this was roughly 20 minutes after the first two after this. So by then, the other 16, they were already down, unfortunately, in the water fighting for survival. So then at this time, the B-25 starts to descend. So never mind what I said earlier. So now the B-25 is descending again, like I said, kind of unaware, just going about his business, going back to land. So he's going to land completely oblivious of the other jumpers that are in the water. There were some survivors. Not everyone died. Skydivers Bernard Johnson and Robert Coy, they frantically struggled to free themselves from their gear before hitting the water. They desperately tried to stay afloat, but their gear was starting to take them under. So it seemed like this was that this was it for them, and and they were. You can imagine treading water with all this extra heavy gear. Treading water is is difficult task. Even in calm waters, it, it's exhausting. It takes a lot of energy out of you. If you imagine adding in high waves, and you have all this extra weight on you, that's just going to be even harder to do. You know, obviously, I've never experienced anything quite like that. Um, I've mentioned before I served in the Navy. One of the requirements for the Navy is you do you have to be able to swim. You have you have to you have to be able to swim. When you go to boot camp, they have an Olympics high swimming pool. You have to jump off of a. I don't remember how tall it is. It's it's like one of the Olympic platform diving boards. It's not the super high one, but it's like one of the lower like. 20 or 30 feet, something like that. You jump off feet first. You have to come up, show your head out of the water. You have to swim the length of the pool using some sort of a swim stroke, breast stroke, butterfly back, some sort of actual swimming stroke showing you can do that. They don't care what, just as long as you can do it. And then you also have to, there's one you have to, we had to tread water for like five minutes wearing our coveralls. And then you have to use your coveralls as a flotation device. They show you a technique, you use it as a flotation device, all these sort of all these sort of things that you have to do to prove that you can stay in the water, tread water, swim. And we're doing this in a controlled environment, and it was exhausting. And, you know, I was in my mid-20s when I went to boot camp, and fairly fit, fairly, you know, I exercise regularly. I still try to now, but I was definitely more fit then than I am now. I'm, I'm going to be 40 here in two weeks. But, yeah, so it's, you have to be able to swim. So, being in this kind of situation, I just, I'm, Imagine the thoughts going through their head, just the chaos of trying to stay afloat, trying to get all this heavy gear off of you. You're fighting for survival. You've got water crashing down on you. It sounds terrifying. Honestly, it, it sounds absolutely terrifying. I've swam in the ocean, just, you know, just swimming for fun. You go on a beach, you go swimming. I love it. It's fun. It's a workout. It's exhausting. And then treading water in water, even if it's calm water, it's exhausting. It's tiring you know, without gear. So these guys are, are sitting here, Bernard and Robert treading water, shedding their gear, getting splashed around and moved around in this, this water, trying to survive. At this time, there was actually a private fishing boat that appeared off in the distance. It did head straight towards them and they were pulled aboard basically just in time uh, to survive. They were pulled on board by this fishing boat. The, the guys in the boat saw that, uh, saw them, saw they were struggling, went over there picked them up, pulled them on board. So fortunately, these two men, Bernard Johnson and Robert Coy, did survive this inc inc incident. 
According to one of them, I, I couldn't get an exact quote which one was Bernard or Robert. Okay, so according to one of them, Bernard or Robert, they saw a boat. They saw their large radio antenna coming off the top of the boat. This is a different boat, not the one that rescued them. And this also, I saw in other articles too, that supposedly there was a, a vessel that came towards them and we're, we're going to rescue them, I guess. I don't know. So it says here, I'm just going to say the quote that came from them. So, quote, as he struggled to stay afloat, uh, he saw a man on the deck looking directly at him. This is a different boat, not the one that rescued him. Quote continues, but despite his cries for help, the boat continued past him, not even 20 yards away. To this day, nobody knows who the unhelpful stranger was. Many speculate that he could have been involved in some shady dealings and didn't want to get involved with the rescue. End quote. So that was another boat that basically, according to one of them, Bernard or Robert, saw it come near them, looks directly at the guy in the boat, and the boat just kept going. But anyways, they were rescued by another one. Unfortunately, initially at the time, uh, rescue teams only recovered two lifeless bodies. And this was this was initial reports after the incident. They found two, uh, unfortunately, deceased bodies of the jumpers. Um, of course, an investigation began shortly after uh, with local sheriffs, uh, Coast Guard, uh, state wildlife. Who else was involved? Uh, I remember looking at my notes. There was also a state liquor commission was involved in the rescue. Basically, they got a lot of local authorities to help in the rescue efforts. Uh, Red Cross, things like that, were involved in the local rescue effort. They came from... Uh, Areas from Lorraine and Akron around the area to help with the, the, the search and rescue. So in the next few days, the, the as the investigation carried on, we started to see what had happened. Um, now, the bodies of the remaining jumpers eventually were retrieved, unfortunately, from the water. Approximately a month later, the National Transportation Safety Board, they did find that the B-25 pilot and the FAA flight controller... FAA, FTC, were both at fault for the incident. The jumpers also were found to have some responsibility as well. So they found fault of the pilot, FAA flight controller, and also some of it on the the jumpers, unfortunately, who passed away. They basically said the blame on the jumpers was that they jumped out where they could have basically said no because of the cloud cover, basically. That, that was kind of the argument. It's like, okay, you're about to jump out. You see there's clouds below you you can't see the ground maybe you should have said no let's not jump i know it's exciting we have this chance to jump all of us maybe we should save it for a clear day that was kind of their basically their their argument basically saying that there could have still been an, at any point the jumpers could have said you know what Nah, i'm not feeling this maybe we should not do this um and even the jump master obviously could have made that call too but you realize one of those things anybody could have said hey you know what no let's we need to cancel this and just say no. So they put fault on the pilot. They put fault on the FAA controller for giving them the wrong heading, the wrong location, putting them further north than they actually were, and on the jumpers for basically just going within, like, cool, we're out here, let's jump. And it's unfortunate because at this point they're deceased because of this decision. The pilot, his certificate was indefinitely suspended. And then later in 1972, the FAA... They were found responsible for the deaths of the skydivers in a wrongful death lawsuit. This is one of the, the things that I, I'm not sure about the information that I mentioned at the beginning. I couldn't find this information elsewhere, so I'm not sure how true this is. I looked on, uh, I, I even looked on a, um, 
I think it was actually FAA's website um, on some like archival uh, stories, uh, information. I couldn't find it, this information. This came from the documentary. I looked at other news articles, FAA's website at some of their, their historical archived writings. I couldn't find this information. So this wrongful death lawsuit, I'm not sure about. If you know better than me, if it is legit, if you have a link, let me know. I, I couldn't find it. So, and like I said, the documentary is the only place that I saw this, the this wrongful death lawsuit against the FAA for the loss of the life of the skydivers. So I'm not sure how legit that is. So that's that's I just want to put that out there. That's kind of, that's a I think a big part of it. But I, being that I can only find it in one source, it seems like maybe it was just made up for um, this little documentary just to make it seem more exciting. I guess I don't know butter it up a bit I, i'm not sure but yeah i couldn't actually find it this i did find uh in other sources after this event the parachute club of america changed some of its rules and restrictions they came up with a restriction that you cannot jump within 50 miles of any body of water unless you have proper survival gear being worn so you can still jump over water into water i guess near water as long as you have proper survival gear or that if you don't you cannot be 50 miles within a body of water so they came, did come up with that i did find that in multiple locations i actually found a link to that change when it occurred in the 70s all that so that was legit that's my son screaming so to this date this still remains the largest skydiving accident incident tragedy however you want to put it to date historically um with the loss of life the number of skydivers that lost their lives in this incident uh, is just truly devastating you know, it could have been easily avoided with, with the FTC making that mistake with their heading and their location, with the pilot uh, agreeing to fly them out there. So in the morning, it was cloudy. They decided to do it late in the afternoon when it cleared up. It was clear when they left, but then it was cloudy as they're flying. I, I don't know what kind of sight lines you have in the cockpit of a B-25, but you can still see outside. It's not like you're blinded. It's not like you have no visuals at all. So for the pilot to still be saying, okay, cool, let's jump. You know, the pilot could have made that call and be like, hey, you know what, guys, it's cloudy. Maybe we should do this some other time. Save it for another day. So the pilot could have had an opportunity to stop it. The jump master, when he was given the okay, could have, same thing, opened the door and could have been like, mm, it's cloudy, maybe not. And then the jumpers themselves as well, could, same thing. It, I, again, I've never been in one of these aircrafts. I don't know what how the visuals are with the windows, how much they could see. But still, you could have been like, Mm, I, I don't want to jump down into the clouds below me that I, I can't see the ground. Excuse my children screaming in the background. This is why I wish I had a studio where I had some quiet. So, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of people, a lot of factors that played into this and, and a lot of decisions that were poor decisions, too, I think, that were made, unfortunately, that led to the loss of life. It's a tragedy. It It's terrible. But, yeah, so it's, again, largest skydiving tragedy to date on record you know like i said that there's nothing paranormal about this nothing uh not really true crime or anything it's just i i saw this documentary it, it piqued my interest i thought it was uh quite a story of just human error all over the place a lot of different people that could have made different decisions that could have led to the these people surviving to live another day and, and maybe skydive on a nice clear day and making the actual drops on they were supposed to be at yeah it's really unfortunate but 
I just thought it was an interesting story. So I'll link in the show notes the articles that I found. Uh, the one from the Huron Historical Society, that was a really good article. Um, it was actually a newspaper article that came from just with like within days of when it occurred, talking about the incident at the time. Yeah, just a terrible tragedy. I really don't know what else to say. It was a story that piqued my interest. I, I saw this documentary. I started reading more about it and just find it so crazy that, that so much human error. And there were so many opportunities, like I said, that, you know, people could have taken to, to, to stop it from not getting to what it did. But unfortunately, it did happen. But on the fortunate side, you know, rules were changed to make the sport better and, and safer now for people that do enjoy it. So if you're a skydiver, if you enjoy skydiving, awesome, cool. Let me know your stories. What what have you experienced? To, you know, what sort of sights have you seen? I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful sights from way up above. Um, where have you jumped? What, what what's your favorite place that you've gone and jumped from? Whatever you know, um, let me know. I'd love to hear it. I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's really cool that as far as the sport of skydiving, recreational skydiving, you know, you see nowadays. You know, it's become hugely popular in the last, what, 20, 25 years, give or take. The, 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 um, those like wing suits, what they call them like the flying squirrel suits. Those are crazy watching people do those, fly those. Really cool, really neat. I know there's people out in Dubai now that do like, um, there's some guy that has like a jet powered wingsuit or something. That's, that's crazy to me. That's awesome. I think that's just so incredible. So, so awesome. But yeah, if you're interested in that sport, if you know more about it, let me know. I, again, I think it's fascinating. So. Hopefully you got something out of this story, as tragic as it is. If you enjoyed this story, let me know. I'd appreciate it. Uh, you can get in touch with me on Facebook, Our Weird World. You can get in touch with me on Instagram, Our Weird World. I'll have all these linked, of course. Uh, you can send me an email, ourweirdworldpodcast at gmail.com. If you just want to drop in, say hi, send me a comment, question, concern, whatever. You know, let me know a story. You know, let me know... Uh, any of the what these any of these episodes podcast you enjoy whatever reach out to me i'd love to hear from you thank you for listening stay safe out there if you're a skydiver if you do do, do this kind of stuff stay safe just, that's the big thing it's just safety just have fun do it right be safe take care we'll catch you next time <laughs>